let's really quickly um, read again the passage that we spent a lot of time in last week. I'm reading in Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 17. I'm going to skip a few verses, and I'm going to spend most of our time in verses 23 through 25, and then chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. Don't worry. It's not as, not as bad as it sounds. <laughs> okay. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them. All right, now I'm going to skip to chapter 9. I'm going to read just a few verses from chapter 9. I'm going to start in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Okay, so here we are at the front door of the Sermon on the Mount. This is a big deal piece of scripture, okay? For a couple reasons, I say this. One, as we discussed last week, Matthew has held our hand and walked us to the launching of Christ's ministry, right? All the way up until chapter 5, we have this, this building into the ministry of Jesus. And, and as soon as we open Chapter 5, we start to see this is what Jesus' teaching looked like. This is what Jesus' ministry looked like. This is, this is truly the introduction to the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, because this is where it is in the canon, if you just pick up a Bible, you know nothing about Christianity. You just pick up a Bible and you start to read from Genesis all the way through Malachi and you turn the page and all of a sudden the answer to all of these coming promises is here in Jesus You've got a lot of questions, right? Who is this guy? What does he say about things? What does he think about things? How is he behaving? What is he thinking about these people, right? And, and Matthew is about to answer those questions, and you turn to chapter 5, and you got a sermon. Now, the other big deal thing about this sermon, it, it is the longest uninterrupted teaching of Jesus in the Bible, Okay? So we don't approach this sermon lightly. Um, we approach this sermon with that same anticipation that we would have if we were just first opening the book of the Bible, right? If we were just first bringing those same questions, who is this man? What does he have to say? What does he have to think, right? 
So part of the problem, though, with the Sermon on the Mount is, is that there, there have been people since, I don't know, 45 A.D. that have been trying to answer the question, what is the purpose? What is the central purpose of the Sermon on the Mount? And I'm not kidding. There's more than 30 fully formed approaches to this sermon. All right, more than 30. And that's coming from indexes that I, I look through, from guys that are, are just going back from the beginning of Christian history and counting up the, the unique approaches to this passage. So, so this is not an easy question to ask. What is the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount? And people have been asking it for some time. Um, I want to give you of those, and we're not going to go through those 30, uh, thank goodness, we're not going to go through those 30 different interpretations. But luckily, those 30 different interpretations can be sort of understood by dividing them into two poles, all right? There are two major approaches to the Sermon on the Mount. I want to talk about both. The first one is that the Sermon on the Mount represents an impossible call to righteousness that causes us to long for grace, okay? Just like the law, the sermon is an impossible call. Jesus is saying, you got to be this way. 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 And we're sitting here saying, I'm not those ways. That's not me. I have no hope in, the coming, in being a citizen of the coming kingdom. And that, and that impossible call causes us to say, I need an advocate. I need an advocate. I need somebody to do it for me. Right? And so we turn to Christ, who does indeed fulfill our righteousness on our behalf. Okay, so that's one approach. Now, the other approach is that when, when Christ says, do this, be this way, it's real, and he actually means us to follow his instructions. Okay? The, the other approach to this is, no, 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 this is not impossible, in fact, Christ is actually asking us to do things he, he indeed expects us to do. Okay? And that's actually a pretty compelling argument. Right? Christ, when Christ says, um, I'm not just telling you that, that if you commit adultery, you're up, you violated the law. I'm telling you that, that if you look on uh, a woman with desire, you, you violated the law. Christ isn't saying, that, I'm only telling you this so you know you need me. Christ is actually expecting you to change the way you're viewing the opposite sex, right? Okay, so that's actually, the, both of these are compelling, which is in part, part of the reason why we've been trying to figure out a way forward here for so long, all right? All right, let me give you a little bit of a closer view. So the impossible call argument is, is very... Um, is, is very compelling when you read passages like, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I want one of the kids who has the, 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 the thing, uh, the coloring thing, I want you to hold it up. All right. Luke, Levi, I saw you've got, hold up the thing, okay. Okay, now turn it so that everybody else can see it. Somebody read that for me. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory. Case closed. 
right? Case closed. The first interpretation is the right one, right? All right, well, then you've got the real and doable people saying, now hang on, Jesus said the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and few will find it, all right? Now, if Christ's only purpose was to teach you that you needed him and that was his only purpose for the sermon, does this quite necessarily make sense? The way is hard. It's hard to be a disciple of Christ. All right. I think the trick to understanding the Sermon on the Mount is that the gospel of the kingdom is both. Okay? The gospel of the kingdom is both. And here's what I mean. Here's here's the major claim this morning. The Sermon on the Mount represents an impossible call to righteousness. It represents an impossible call to righteousness that trains our hearts to long for grace. But when we've been granted grace, we are then empowered by God to embody that impossible righteousness. Let me read that again because I think this is going to be helpful if we're all on the same page here. The Sermon on the Mount represents an impossible call to righteousness that trains our hearts to long for grace. But when we've been granted grace, we're empowered by God to embody that righteousness. So what I just said is, yes, it's an impossible call that calls us to long for an advocate. And yes, it's a real and doable call to righteousness for the people of God by the might of the Spirit. I think that's the the heart and purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, and I'm going to show you exactly how I got there. It's not my, my it's not it's not my answer. I sometimes I pretend like it's my answer, but it's really the answer of like a lot of much smarter people than me. Um, so I'm going to tell you how D. A. Carson got there. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, okay, so. Uh, I think key to understanding the sermon is the structure of Matthew. We talked about about this last week, but I want to draw nearer to this passage because you you need to see this structure and you need to see how it informs the argument of the sermon, okay? So so we have in this passage this this initial call in verse 17 of chapter 4. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This This is Matthew's summary of the teaching of Jesus, all right? At the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus, you have this summary. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or repent, for the kingdom's coming. Or repent, because the kingdom's very near. Okay? You have this summary sentence that sort of overall represents Christ's teaching. And I'm arguing that this is the subheading for chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. Okay? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we have this summary passage in chapter, in chapter 4, verse 23. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction from among the people. Okay, you see that? Teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And then we see that summary repeated in Chapter 9, okay? And then what do we see in chapters 5 through 7? We see teaching and the proclamation 
that the kingdom is coming, the gospel of the kingdom. And then in, in, uh, in, in chapters 8 and 9, we see the healing. We see the healing of every affliction and every disease, okay? So I'm saying that these two summaries are teaching us what to look out for and how to sort it out, all right? And let's draw a little nearer, okay? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, we talked about this just a touch before, but let me just, uh, let me just uh, direct your attention to what this means. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does Christ mean by repent? Well, we're going to see this play out in the next few chapters, but what he, what he means by repent is to turn from your sin and to prepare for God's kingdom. And then we have the second half of this, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Christ is actually demonstrating what that kingdom's going to be like, all right? So Christ isn't calling people to repent from a vacuum. Christ is actually uh, demonstrating what they're repenting toward. Does that make sense? I was talking with my wife yesterday afternoon about this passage, and she said, man, I wonder what it must have been like. Like, these guys have been watching Jesus change lives, heal people. Blind men have sight. And paralytics who were born without the use of their limbs are now walking about town, right? This guy has unparalleled power and authority, and then he opens his mouth, right? So you've got a couch, the call to repentance that we see in chapters 5, 6, and 7 against the backdrop of this display of freedom and peace, right? All right. All right, so repent. So, so prepare for a kingdom. And why should you prepare for that kingdom? Because this is what the kingdom's like, all right? I think that is all captured in verse 17 of chapter 4. And then we have, as we mentioned, um, two summaries. Um, oh, my gosh. I'm all confused. Two summaries. He went teaching and proclaiming. I already reviewed that. Then we've got the teaching. Um, repent. And we're going to spend all of our time today in the teaching of Jesus in chapters 5, 6, and 7. Right on the heels of this teaching is this display of healing. And, and last time, I gave you the episodes by virtue, or not, I gave you the episodes indexed by the recipient of the healing. But I don't think that's very helpful because it's very clear in chapter seven, eight, or in chapters eight and nine, that the meaning of those passages to show you what is coming in the coming kingdom. So I want to quickly review the healing episodes in chapters eight and nine to teach you what Jesus seems to be indicating by healing people. Which is one, the kingdom of heaven is coming, and what is that kingdom like? It's a kingdom of purity. Chapters, chapter 8, verse 1 through 4. It's a kingdom of relief from suffering, 5 through 6. It's a kingdom of healing, chapter 8, verse 14 through 17. And it's a kingdom of peace, chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. It's a kingdom of forgiveness, chapter 8, verses 28 through 34. It's a kingdom of mercy, chapter 9, verses 9 through 10. It's a kingdom of resurrection life. Chapter 9, verses 18 through 25. It's a kingdom of restoration, and it's a kingdom of freedom. These are aspects of the kingdom that Jesus is giving a sneak preview to when he's healing people in Galilee. 
right? He's walking about town and he's, and he's, and he's, and he's doing miracles, okay? But these miracles mean something about what people are anticipating in the kingdom. They mean to teach your heart exactly what to long for, and that longing will actually help you get rid of the sin in your life, all right? All right, so just for simplicity's sake, let me just, I'm going to repeat myself in a handful of different ways. First, Christ calls his people to prepare for the kingdom, and then he shows them the type of kingdom that they're preparing for, all right? Chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Christ calling his people to prepare for the kingdom, and then he's showing his people what type of kingdom to prepare for, all right? What they have awaiting them in the coming kingdom. That's the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom is not merely the call to repent. The gospel of the kingdom is not merely the call to repent. The gospel of the kingdom is the call to repent toward a kingdom of peace. The call to repent toward a kingdom of restoration, toward a kingdom of healing and freedom. Okay? That's the gospel of the kingdom. So when we're going to see this in chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, you're going to see the phrases, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and you're going to see the phrase, gospel of the kingdom, and you're going to read the Sermon on the Mount, and what I'm arguing right now is that they're all the same. The message of all three are the same. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand is the same thing as saying, the gospel of the kingdom, which is the same thing as saying what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Namely, you need to leave your sin because there's a kingdom coming that is better than you can ever imagine. All the freedom, all the peace, all the healing, all the restoration, all the resurrection life that you couldn't dare to hope for, that's in the kingdom, and that's the kingdom I'm calling you to prepare your heart for. Okay? Are we jacking? Tara told me last week, I've started to ask for amens too often. So I'll try and get better. Amen? Amen. All right, one more way to say the same thing. The heart of Jesus' teaching was a call to repentance motivated by an expectation of a better kingdom. Okay, a call to repentance motivated by an expectation of a better kingdom. All right. So I just said the same thing in 14 different ways. I, uh, I was at a, I used to go to the village a long time ago, and um, Matt Chandler one week got a letter from somebody that said, um, said, you know what, I stopped listening to your sermons because you say the same thing three weeks out of four. And so he read that letter in front of everybody, and he said, I just need to apologize. I'm really going for four weeks out of four. <laughs> so I, I know this is redundant, but this is the core message, right? Maybe not even of this section, but maybe even of the, the book. Repent, prepare your heart for, for a coming kingdom, all right? Re- leave your sins in expectation for a kingdom where your sins are going to look like like ridiculous wastes of time, all right? Okay. Now, here's the big question, all right? Jesus is actively through healing, through demonstrations of authority, through teaching. He's actively building in our hearts a longing 
for the coming kingdom. He's actively teaching our hearts all the aspects of the kingdom that we, we have always secretly been longing for, but we didn't have a name for that longing, right? He's, he's training us to yearn for the coming kingdom. And the big question here is, what happens when those who long for the kingdom face the impossible standards of the kingdom? Okay? What happens when those who long for the kingdom face the impossible standards of the kingdom? Because I know, I, can, I know because this is my situation, and I can imagine what it's like for those who are sitting and listening to him. You see who he is, and you see what he's doing, and you think, I want that. I want this to be my king. I want, I want the king who can, who can, who can heal the, the, the cripple, and I want the king who can open the eyes of the blind. I want the king who can give me peace, how, how long I've yearned for peace. And then he opens his mouth and he says, be perfect. And you know you're thinking, oh no, why'd you even tell me about the kingdom? Why, why, why would you stir my heart to open that sort of kingdom? I'm not perfect. That's the big question. What happens when those who long for the kingdom face the impossible standards of the kingdom and now it's time to open the Sermon on the Mount. Now it's time to open the Sermon on the Mount. We will probably spend a good portion of time over the next six months in this sermon. I, I, I think it's worth the effort. But in big passages like this, sometimes the best thing you can do is go high altitude first. That's what we're going to do now. We're going to do a high altitude picture of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I like to refer to the sermon as a comfort sandwich. I know that's ridiculous. A comfort sandwich. Here's what I mean. Jesus, in the sermon, he's calling people to prepare with an impossible standard for righteousness, and then right smack in the center of the sermon itself is the comfort of grace. Is the comfort of grace. And then... Instead of just leaving you there with this feeling, okay, everything's going to be okay because there's grace here. He says, no, no, you're still called. No, no, you're still called to righteousness, all right? Comfort sandwich. Here's what I mean. The Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. Okay. In the Beatitudes, you're seeing characteristics of kingdom citizens followed by this promise of reward. And I don't know about you, but when I hear blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, I don't think, oh, that's me. That's me. I'm that guy. I'm, I'm sitting, in my, sitting in my room at... 4 a.m., pleading with the Lord, righteousness. It's not me. Meek. I was arguing with somebody about this passage, and I was sure I was right. (laughs) So I'm like, no, no, ugh. No, this is the way to understand this passage. And then I, like, finished the conversation, walked away, and then I realized the passage I was talking about is blessed are the meek. <laughs> I'm not meek. 
I'm not. Right. But I, but I want to inherit the earth. Right? You've got this, this display of the characteristics of kingdom citizens in the Beatitudes, right? With this promise of reward. And, and I don't know many people who can say, that's all me. I'm there. Those are characteristics of mine. So I have all these things to look forward to right now. They're, they're, it's a call. Just like the rest of this sermon. It's a call to prepare. But what about the salt-light conversation? You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall the saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Oh, you're the light of the world. I have, I have hidden my light under a basket. I have done that. Kingdom citizens must shine, Christ says. And then he issues a warning for those who don't. This is a call. This is a call to repent for the kingdom is coming. Right? It's a call to prepare. What, what about 5, 17 through 20? Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom citizens must do and teach the law, followed by not only a warning, but, but a promise of reward for those who do them. Right, this is a call to prepare. Here's the big one. You've heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard it said, but I tell you. Oh no, I'm no longer safe from the wrath of God because I've never murdered anybody. And if that wasn't heavy enough, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Mm. That's a call to prepare issued with a warning. Okay, well, all right. Let's focus a little bit closer. How do you relate to people? I give. I'm a giver. I tithe. Well, hang on. Your right hand can't even know what your left hand is doing. Because kingdom citizens do not seek man's praise. That's a, that's a warning followed by a promise of reward for those who give in secret, Right? Or what about your relationship to God? Well, I pray. I fasted two weeks ago, right? I'm right there. I'm good. I am prepared. Now, hang on. When you fast, everybody around you needs to be completely ignorant of that because you are, you are serving the God who sees in secret, right? Kingdom citizens must not seek man's praise, all right? There's a warning and a reward. What I'm trying to show you is from, from chapter 5 all the way through the prayer in chapter 6, you've just got this expectation. You want to be a kingdom citizen? Here's what you should be like. You want to be a kingdom citizen? This is what you must do. You want to be a kingdom citizen? You need to fulfill the law and the spirit of the law, and you must be perfect, you don't work for man's praise. Even the good deeds you do, they should be done in secret because you're serving the Father in secret. This is just a call to repent. This is a call to prepare. 
and it's heavy. And we have all failed. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And right there, right when you're at your darkest moment, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us and forgive us our debts. Right in the center of the Sermon on the Mount is an invitation issued by the Son of God to plead for forgiveness. For it will be granted to those who forgive. And you keep reading and you see an invitation to extend mercy and you'll see mercy. And this is my favorite. Hope for grace. At the very end of your self, having realized your own foolishness, having realized that even though you thought you were good, you were no even close to good, ask. Ask. And it will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it'll be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, and it will be opened. Which one of you, if your son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a servant? If you then, who are evil... (laughs) Jesus is not for a moment entertaining that anybody is meeting this criteria in the crowd. Not for a moment. He says, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? I can't count the number of times I have had people walk up to me and say, I'm knee-deep in sin and there is no hope for me. How do I even know that I'm a believer? The answer is simple. God doesn't turn away those who seek him. Seek him. Seek him. Ask him. Knock on the door. That's the kind of God he is. That that hope for grace is situated right in the center of this impossible call to righteousness. He says, fulfill the law as I fulfilled the law. He says, he says, uh, he says, the spirit of the law should characterize your behavior. He says, you should serve the Father in secret. You should give in secret. He says you must be perfect. And then he says, but there's grace. And he says, but there's forgiveness. He says, but there's mercy. He says, and when you find yourself at the end, ask me. Ask me. Okay. So right in the center of this presentation is this hope for grace. And then... And then Christ shifts back into a call to prepare. King, kingdom citizens will be few, for the way is hard. Enter by the narrow gate. The gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. He says, kingdom citizens will bear fruit. 
All others will be cut down. Right? Prepare. Prepare. And he says, only those who do the will of the Father are kingdom citizens. People are going to come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this and this and this? He says, I never knew you. The only invitations to the kingdom are those issued to those who do the will of the Father. That is, that is a hard teaching. That is a hard teaching. And Christ is unrelenting to issue that invitation to obedience, to doing the will of God. And finally, when the floods come, those who hear my words and do them, those are the kingdom citizens. Their house will stand. Right? The Sermon on the Mount represents an impossible call to righteousness that leads us to confront face-to-face our own sin, right? And our, our inability and our weakness and our frailty. And then when we confront that frailty, He invites us to come and find grace. But that's not where the conversation stops. Christ continues to call his people to obedience, to righteousness. So I want to summarize the sermon in two paragraphs, okay? I want to summarize the sermon in in two paragraphs. First, the call. Kingdom citizens are meek. They hunger for righteousness. They're pure in heart. They are salt and light. They do and teach the law. They seek God's praise, not man's. They seek heaven's treasures, not earth's. They trust God. They exhibit mercy. They walk the hard way. They do the will of the Father and heed the words of the Son. That's what kingdom citizens are like. But here's the comfort. When you fail, Christ has fulfilled. Let me read something to you. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to to fulfill them. When you fail, Christ has fulfilled. When you fall, did you fall today? I did. Yesterday, I did. The day before, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. When you fall, God is ready to forgive. When you're weak, God is ready to give you strength. When you ask, He'll answer. When you seek, He'll be found. When you knock, He'll open. God grants the impossible to those who ask for it. 
I think that we believe that we need the gospel once. None of us would probably say that, but I think that's what we believe. I think we believe that we need the gospel once. Namely, when we recognize our sin, we go to Jesus, and Jesus, having fulfilled all righteousness, takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness, and then we bear the righteousness of God. And that's when we need the gospel. And that's, that's the prerequisite for kingdom citizenship. And, and we can hope in the kingdom because we're wearing the righteousness of Christ. Now, everything that I just said is true, okay? But day two, day two of your call, Christ is asking you to be obedient and to be merciful and to be gracious and to be loving and to carry burdens and to give generously. And when you fall, you are in just as desperate need of the gospel as you were on day one. We don't ever stop running to Jesus and saying, I can't. It's not me. My flesh is weak. We harp on it. Our, our camp harps on the gospel. It was almost wrote 15 years ago. Gospel, 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 gospel coalition. Together for the gospel. Every article you read was gospel, gospel, gospel. There's a purpose for that redundancy. And that is that the gospel was the answer first, and it's the answer now, and it's the answer for tomorrow. Okay? You will face your own sin, not just on day one, but on days two, three, four, five, five thousand. You will face your sin. And when you face your sin, you run to Jesus. And he's quick to forgive. And he's quick to issue his spirit without measure and to equip you to fulfill all righteousness. Let me clarify, Christ was the only one who ever and will ever fulfill all righteousness. But he will equip you to do the will of the Father. He will equip you to walk carefully according to his will and counsel by the, by the work of his Spirit. So when you fail, when you're weak, you run to Jesus. Because God grants impossible obedience to those who ask for it. All right. Let me summarize the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew's, Matthew 5 through 9. Let me summarize the gospel of the kingdom. A better kingdom is coming. And only the righteous may enter. But take comfort, for God is ready to do what you cannot and to equip you to fulfill his righteous call. All right? A better kingdom is coming, and only the righteous may enter. But take comfort, for God is ready to do what you cannot and to equip you to fulfill his righteous call. Okay. How do we apply Christ's call to repent and prepare for the kingdom? Wild guess. Somebody, somebody, wild guess. How do we, 
How do we apply God's call to repent and prepare for the kingdom? Any ideas? Repent and prepare for the kingdom. Your call. I, I was thinking, oh, what should the application be? Basically, the sermon is the application. Basically, the Sermon on the Mount is the application. So let me resituate my summary of the Sermon on the Mount as application. Okay? And this is certainly the heaviest application I've ever issued in a sermon. It's certainly the most impossible to fulfill. But here we go. Here's your call. Strive by the might of God. Strive to become meek. Plead to hunger for righteousness. Seek true purity in heart. Be salt. Be light. Do and teach the law of freedom. Seek God's praise, not man's. Seek heaven's treasures, not earth's. Trust God. Exhibit mercy. Walk the hard way. Do the will of the Father and heed the words of the Son. That's your application. Simple. Strive to become meek. Hunger for righteousness. Seek true purity. Be salt. Be light. Do and teach the law of freedom. Seek God's praise, not man's. Seek heaven's treasures, not earth's. Trust God. Exhibit mercy. Walk the hard way. Do the will of the Father and heed the words of the Son. Basically what I'm telling you is to do what Jesus said. He meant for you to do it. These words were not issued to you as an individual only so you could see your insignificance and your failure. Only so that you could see your weakness. That's not the whole purpose. It's only part of the purpose. You are being called to do this. And as you do this, the world will see. But here's your comfort. When you fail, Christ has fulfilled. When you fall, God is ready to forgive. And when you're weak, God is ready to give you strength. When you ask, he'll answer. When you seek, he'll be found. When you knock, he'll open. God grants the impossible to those who ask for. So you want to apply the sermon? You want to apply Christ's call to repent and prepare for the coming kingdom? Stop sinning and start preparing. And just keep preparing until the kingdom comes. And as you're preparing, you're going to see, oh, there's some more sin in my heart. Stop sinning and keep preparing. And when you find that obstacle, when you hit the wall of your sin, when you hit the wall of your weakness, and you think, I can't do it anymore, you're right. You can't do it anymore, but the Spirit is powerful. The Spirit raised Christ from the dead is in you, and He can equip you to do the righteousness to which you've been called. Amen? Amen. There's two excesses you could fall into after hearing a sermon like this. And, indeed, after reading the Sermon on the Mount. You can despair. 
You can despair because you have not even remotely met these met this call. You can despair because you find yourself failing in 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 even the most ridiculous ways. Say, I'm not even on paragraph two and I failed. I can remember distinctly 50 times I failed this week and I'm not even in paragraph two. And you can find yourself despairing. Don't ignore Christ's call for comfort. He has comforted you by grace. He has forgiven you in, God has forgiven you in Christ. Then you wear Christ's righteousness. You are no longer under condemnation. Not only that, you stand clean before God and you have been given a spirit who will empower those who ask. Don't despair. Find yourself faced with your own weaknesses and failure and then turn to the comforter. And ask God and he will give good gifts to his children. Okay? So don't despair. The other, I fear the more predominant excess is to just swim in that comfort waiting for the kingdom to come. Just float in it. No worries. No worries. I'm saved by grace. I fear that some of the warnings in the second half of the sermon might be for you. Kingdom citizens bear fruit. Kingdom citizens walk the hard way. Kingdom citizens do the will of the Father. And if you're sitting comfy 20 years after Christ changed your life and nothing's changed and you're not spending yourself on your church and you're not serving your family and you're not giving generously and you're not setting your treasures in heaven, there's no pool of comfort for you. It doesn't belong to those who aren't following. Okay? So don't despair. If you find yourself despairing, that's actually very good. You followed Christ all the way to the middle of his sermon. Now just keep going. Okay? Now just keep going. However, if you're dwelling in the middle of the sermon and completely ignoring the first and the second half, that's the trouble. That's the trouble territory. And look, we're here to talk about it. We don't often say this, but, but the elders, we make it a point to just stick around and answer questions and talk to people who are struggling. If you felt comfortable in your grace and you see no fruit in your life, you need to talk to us right now. As soon as, soon as this service is over, you need to run to somebody. And if you're crippled by despair because of your sin, you should come talk to somebody too. All right? Heed the call and, and, and take comfort in the grace. Amen? Okay. Let's, uh, let's sing together of that grace.